Hello and welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. My name's Dr. Will Duffin. Last year, World Extreme Medicine were given the great honor of providing medical cover for filming of the world's toughest race hosted by Bear Grylls out in Fiji. And we're excited to announce, in case you didn't know already, that the show is now available to watch on Amazon Prime and it's awesome. This expedition race pits 66 teams against 300 miles of the most inhospitable and rugged terrain Fiji has to offer over 11 days, encompassing multiple disciplines such as hiking and swimming along rivers, mountain biking through thick mud, rafting on outrigger canoes, rappelling down waterfalls, and there is plenty of medical drama, including trauma from a mountain bike crash, heat exhaustion and hypothermia, lower leg infections, demolished knees. This race truly pushed the competitors to their physical and emotional limits. Go check it out. If you're interested specifically in the medical team, then check out the x-ray feature on episode six to hear a piece from our race medical director, Dr. Joe Rolls. And Joe will be joining us at the WEM conference this autumn to discuss more of the medical aspects of this race. Now, in this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by one of the world's toughest race competitors, uh, who's captain of one of the featured teams, Iron Cowboy, and that is Sonia Wick, otherwise affectionately known as Go Sonia. Her team had never done an adventure race, but were all seasoned Ironman triathletes. And at 40 years of age, Sonia is a veteran of no fewer than 18 Ironman races and has been consistently among the top in her age group. And she's raced the Kona race, that's in Hawaii, six times. She's also competed in multiple ultramarathons uh, at blistering speeds. And after a dazzling career, she ran into some personal difficulties with mental health, uh, which we'll unpack in this episode. And this race was very much a, a comeback story for her. She's gonna tell us what it takes and what it takes out of you to be part of a race like this, alongside her journey as both a competitor and human being. Sonia's mission is simple, to encourage men and women of all ages that you can push yourself to do the impossible. But if you, if you strive for success and achievement for your own ego, you will be left unfulfilled. And it's when you pursue your dreams for your own personal growth, you learn the most about yourself and are able to show up best for others around you. Amen to that. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm very uplifted by that beautiful introduction that you gave me. Thank you. Oh, it's a great pleasure to, to have you join us today. And um, so you're an incredibly sporty person. Uh, I, I would have thought you've been you've been out training today. What, what, what have you been up to today, Sonia? Yeah, I uh, I, li I live next to the beach, so I was out on my paddleboard this morning for about an hour and a half doing what I call otter patrol. And we've got a big family of sea otters that lives in the bay, so I like to go out on my paddleboard and check them out. They often have their little babies on their belly, and yeah, so I spent this morning out on otter patrol, and uh, I'm feeling ready for this podcast now that I've gotten my endurance kick out for the morning. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm the same. I, I, I need to, if I need to sit down to the podcast, I need to have kind of burnt off some energy and just got out Me and too. just ran around for a bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, you're based in California, I gather. Yeah. Central coast of California, a couple mile, uh, a couple hours north of Santa Barbara. 
beautiful area, uh, just lovely, gorgeous, you know, don't move here. It's horrible kind of, kind of area. And, uh, I'm just, I'm really lucky to live in an environment that inspires me every day to get outside and have adventures. Um, cause there are plenty of them to be had ar- around me. And I, I go on a lot of little, little mini adventures in the County during this current COVID situation. And it's pre- pretty awesome. Yeah. What a great place to live. Um, now in this episode, we, we're going to look, uh, we're going to focus on, on, on the race yeah. and your experience yeah, of the race totally. for, for our listeners totally. that have, have been able to, to tune in and watch that. But I'd like to start by going back to the beginning yeah. and yeah. focusing on, on your journey there. And, and, um, let's talk about your career in Ironman. You, you've specialized in Ironman triathlon. Tell us what, what, what is that discipline and, and how did you get into it? Yeah. For those of your listeners who aren't familiar with Ironman, um, it's a pretty big global brand, but it's a, it's a triathlon swim, bike, run, and the swim, it's long. The swim is 2.4 miles. The bike is 112. And then the run is 26.2 miles of running. Um, I, I recognize I probably should know that in kilometers. <laughs> no, in the UK, we work in miles actually. Okay. All right. Okay. I didn't know, but I want to be respectful of the kilometers mile situation. And I really got into the sport um, after I had my daughter in 2005 and I was just a, I was a mom who kind of thought she was adventurous and sporty, but had gained a fair amount of weight from the whole baby experience. And I just one day kind of looked in the mirror and was like, where'd you go? Like, where, where did sporty adventurous Sonia go? And, uh, it was kind of a, fl- a flipping point for, you know, switch point for me. I was like, no, I'm going to find that girl again. And so yeah, I dug my husband's mountain bike out of the garage. He's six foot four. So I had to lower the seat all the way to the bottom and started, I got a little kid hauling trailer for my daughter. And we just started going on these adventures and uh, riding all around to the bank, to the store, to the playground. And then kind of the weight started coming off with these adventures. And so then I I got the kid pushing, you know, the pushing stroller and we started running. And I thought, geez, if I could learn to swim, I never learned to swim, but if I could learn to swim, I'm like, two thirds of the way to a triathlon if I could master one more piece. And, um, it was all kind of with Annie, you know, I would go to the pool and, and I'd either put her in daycare or I'd have a friend come and they play in, play in the water with her. And I just kind of like picked it up and went for it. So did my first triathlon in 2007 when Annie was like 18 months old and I loved it. I just love, I felt so alive and I felt like, oh my gosh, I think I could be good at this, which for a new mom who, kind of felt like she was losing herself was an amazing feeling to just be like, wow, I actually think there's something for me um, in this sort of sport triathlon thing. So my personality is to just dive in deep. And I did. And my family was really supportive. They loved seeing me lit up and and healthy and exercising. And Annie and I were training all the time together. So it was, you know, good mom-daughter time too. And I just went for it. And by 2009, I was doing my first Ironman. And 20 and I missed qualifying for Kona by one place. And so that lit a fire under me like, Ooh, now I want to go to the world championship qualified for Kona in 2010. And, and at that debut, I said, man, I, I would really like to try to win my age group at Kona. So here I just went from, you know, new mom who lost herself to just, you know, maybe three years later going, could I be the best in the world at Ironman? And that was a big, it was a big goal to set. And it really took me five years of exploring that goal and 18 Ironmans and six uh, goes at Kona to finally kind of get myself to the very tippy top of the sport. 
And in 2014, I was second in Kona and second felt like first, honestly, with all, with the journey that I had been on, I was like, this is amazing. Like I was the second fastest in my age group in the world on this really crazy day in a sport that's really popular. Um, and I had just built myself up year after year after year going for it. But it was a little interesting and in that the next morning I woke up and I remember looking over when you win Kona or you get on the podium, they give you like an umiki bowl. It's like a wooden bowl. And that's for five years I had been like, I just want a bowl. I just want a bowl. I, you know, I wanted that podium. The morning after getting second, I woke up and I looked over and I looked at that bowl and I was like, that thing's empty, yo. <laughs> like that thing feels like me right now. Empty. And that kind of stirred me into, wait a second, like something about achievement and chasing podiums isn't quite right. Um, but yeah, like I, I was lucky that I was able to get to the top of the sport to have that aha. You know, if I had just toiled along in the middle of the sports for so many years, I don't know whether I would have gotten there and then gotten that great gift of like, hey, there's a lot more out there. It's not just about this. Because what's really unusual about your story there, Sonia, is that um, most people would reach the top level of their sport pre-kids and then often find that they struggle to maintain yeah. that when kids come along. But you didn't even discover the sport of triathlon until your daughter was 18 months old. And, right. and then you just you totally exploded with it. I mean, that's that's remarkable. Yeah, Annie's, I mean, she's my teacher. Like, I, my life has changed from having her and the human that she's grown up into, anyone who knows my daughter knows that she is a really special kid. Um, she's she's empathic and kind and a better athlete than I will ever be. And she balances all of these things with an extreme level of maturity. Um, and she's been my sidekick all these years through all of this. You know, she's been to almost every Ironman and we, we run together now. So to some extent, I wanted to be a mom worthy of inspiring her, but it's been the flip. Like she has been a child that has kept me inspired to just be good enough to keep up with her. Um, and it's been that way since, you know, since she was two years old. And of the three disciplines in, in, in Ironman triathlon, so you've got the swim, the cycle, and the run, which is your favorite? Oh, man, that's such a hard question. Um, I came to the sport with a running dominance, like running, I ran in high school, and so I kind of had that. But as I got more and more into the sport, I became an Uber biker. Like I just, that became my strength. That's where I do all the damage in the race and kind of like get myself to the front of the race. But the funny thing is, I actually went through a phase in my Ironman where the swimming was by far my favorite thing to do. And I've noticed the thread between all of that really is who I'm doing things with. So I'm a pretty outgoing person and I really love to connect. And if I've got a big tribe of swimmers that I'm swimming with, I had like this group of ladies that I call my dolphin pod. If I had the dolphin pod, then swimming was my jam. You know, if I was training really hard with my coach and he he put me into a group of about 20 men 
who I could train with. And I was just like the bratty kid sister in this group of 20 guys. When I was in that phase of biking, I was an Uber biker because I loved hanging out with these dudes and just being crass and ornery. And so I've gone through these phases of depending on who I'm connecting with and who I'm getting to kind of adventure with. That's, that's where I get lit up. Wow. So you just the kind of person that just likes to get in amongst it in your dolphin party, just find a group and you, you run with them, run with the wolf pack, whatever it is. Yeah. Yep. And I had never adventure raced. Yeah. Like yet there's this whole sport that you do things as a pack and I didn't even know about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And how do you, I mean, how does one go about, if you want to reach an elite level, how do you maintain or or, uh, your fitness and, and, uh, skills in across those three disciplines? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a lot easier to maintain a high level of fitness when you have multiple sports, like a lot, it's a lot easier than being a single sport athlete, um, just from like the mental wear and tear, but also your body really thanks you. I've never been injured. Um, I, I, I like to say I'm made for war. It's not true. I I'm not made for war, but I, because there's those three sports that you're always balancing, you're never doing too much of any one thing at a time and they complement each other in the body, in my opinion, or that's been my experience. Um, you know, I've been the type of athlete that I didn't have a ton of just raw talent, but I had talent in my ability to absorb a lot of training. So I, it would take me 30 hours a week of training to do what most athletes will get out of themselves in 18 or 19 hours a week of training. So it's a gift in that I can, I can handle so much more hours on my body, but then there's also the flip side of like, gosh, I wish I was, I wish I absorbed things quicker and I could get away with doing 18 or 19 hours a week. But I, I always had to train to 30 or 35 or sometimes 40 hours a week to get myself to the very tippy top of the sport. And that's just how my body is inside of itself. Like what I would do would break a lot of other athletes. It doesn't break me. Like that's actually how I get strong. And so I have to love it because doing something for 30 to 40 hours a week is if you don't love every bit of it, you're not going to be able to do as much as I needed to do of it to get great for me. So you have the grit to just put in the hours yeah. that it took yeah. on the other, the time in the saddle and in the pool yeah. and out running just just to to get to that level yep, time on feet just getting those those long hours in and the only key to doing that is enjoying it like that's the one you know key that you have to have in place to make make that work yeah what was that like with family life I mean, uh, yeah. Know, to, yeah to put those 35 hours a week in you know were you still able to to balance those two things yeah that that was hard. (laughs) I'm very lucky that I have an extremely supportive husband who is the breadwinner for our family and who saw very quickly the way he says it is you don't get a lot of opportunities in life to support someone who could be the best in the world at something. And that he always took to heart, like my wife might be the best in the world at something. Oh my gosh, I've got to give her the opportunity to go after it. And Annie has always been the kind of kid. I remember when she was probably, she was probably two and a half and she was a really late talker. She didn't have a lot of words early on. And I remember telling her, okay, I'm going out for a run. And she would stand on the porch and go, bye ma, good run. Bye ma, good run. Like that. She never was clingy or wanted me to stay. She was always like, bye ma, good run. Um, So that I didn't have that pulling of the heartstrings. Like I think a lot of moms have to deal with it, just the sheer 
guilt of being away, I always had a lot of almost like pushing me out the door, like go, go achieve your dreams. We will be here. We'll be fine. Um, and so I credit, you know, Troy and Annie for having that attitude because I know it wasn't always easy for them to have that attitude, but they, they showed up that way, you know, very consistently throughout my whole career and they do to this day. Yeah. And so, so things were going really well and you were competing at a very high level. Um, and then you went through this, as you term it, a, a dark period in your life. You yeah. suffered from panic attacks, depression, and at one point even contemplated suicide. Can you yeah. tell me what led to that, uh, that, that period in your life? Yeah. Like I had mentioned a bit um, after I got second in Kona, I kind of looked over and was like, I feel really empty. Like something's not, I'm not getting it. You know, it's not about this. Like that was great, but not great. And that put me on kind of a a path of more personal journey. And the next year, since I had gotten second, my coach said in 2015, I wouldn't be racing Kona. And, you know, I had raced Kona five years in a row. So my life revolved around qualifying for this race, training for this race, winning this race. And this was the first time that he said, you know, you're not going to the race. You're not doing the big dance next year. Um, You got second. You need to cool your jets. And I didn't know what I was feeling empty. And I didn't really want to go for first because I felt like second was great. So I, I had nothing to hinge on. And I thought, okay, maybe life is about service. Like maybe it's not about achievement. Maybe it's about service. And I had always coached athletes. I had like a stable of about 15 athletes a year that I, I always coached to, to get through Ironman, but none of them ever left. They always stayed with me. And so my, my knowledge as it expanded and grew never got to expand beyond 15 people. And so I thought, okay, well, if you don't let me race Kona, I'm going to build the biggest, baddest coaching company ever. And I don't see any female coaching companies out there in triathlon. They're all male dominated. We need a lady company. And, and so I just sort of distracted and just launched into, I'm going to serve, I'm going to coach these, I'm going to create a platform for other women to become coaches. And then those women are going to coach all these athletes. And I just went gangbusters with it, um, and built that business. But the whole time I was building it, I knew this is not me. Like I struggled massively with entrepreneurship and how professional you have to be and unemotional and calculated. Um, I kept getting like, if I would get feedback from the coaches or feedback from the athletes or sort of the in discussions, that was always like getting to me. So I just emotionally wasn't quite mature enough to handle what I knew I could technically build. And as I went into that, that's when the panic attacks started. I'd never had one before. And um, it was all around like, I can't make these people happy. I can't make those people. I can't make everybody happy and make money. And if I have to kind of manipulate my business structure, you know, everyone gets up in arms and then that would tank me and I'd have a panic attack and I'd have anxiety. And so that loop, I just wasn't able to get on the other side of. And I had a really bad day in my business where I had made some changes and and people were bummed about the changes and they were giving me a lot of feedback and I couldn't emotionally take it. And so I had been having like a conversation and then a panic attack and a conversation and a panic attack. And I had this huge panic attack in an auto body parking lot and I, I passed out and my husband was there and he called 911. I thought I was dying. I thought I died. 
Um, I'd come to find out later, like really bad panic attack can feel very similar to a heart attack. Like you think you're this, I thought it was having heart. I thought it was dying and, but you're not having a heart attack. So you end up in the ER and then they basically are like, give you a sedative and tell you to go home and sleep. And when I kind of came to from that, um, I was just shattered. Like emotionally, I was just broken. Like it was like I was a teapot and I had been dropped on the floor. And I was just like a million, I was just standing there with hands full of pieces going, how do I even put two of these back together? How do I ever pick up my phone again? How do I start to untangle everything that's going on inside of me emotionally from all of this feedback? And I didn't know where to go. I didn't have any help. I like wasn't seeing a therapist. I didn't meditate. You know, I, I just had run around achieving, 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 and then serving, serving, serving. And there was no self care or or mental health care in my life. And so that's really when the work began. And from that point on was when things got really hard, because as you travel down that mental health journey, you start to have to analyze, why am I so affected by other people? Why am I experiencing these mental health attacks? And that means going deep. So it was about four months. I didn't look at my computer. Um, My husband closed my business the week after my huge event. And um, I walked away and went really silent for a really long time and got in therapy. I was in therapy twice a week for a solid three months um, because I just had a lot to unpack. And I had a lot of tools that I needed to practice and gain and, and get experience with before I could stabilize. But yeah, there were times in that four months where all of my failures and everything I hadn't been able to achieve would weigh so heavily, I would start going to that place of like, why am I even here? Why do I even, what am I even about? And and suicidal ideation would kind of come on the heels of that. Um, so it was a journey. It was, you know, I wish it had gone quicker. <laughs> even a year later, I remember thinking, where's the silver linings? Like everyone tells me this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. Where's the darn silver linings? So it just, it did take a long time to kind of rise back up to the surface of the water. Wow. So things really unraveled for you in a big way. Yeah. And, yeah. and you clearly reached a very, very low point. So, you know, yeah. What was that like where you were at, at, at rock bottom, where you were really actually thinking about taking your own life? You know, it's a funny thing, um, suicidal ideation, because it's a part of, for me, it was a part of my brain that would have these thoughts. And then the other part of my brain would look at those thoughts and say, that's really scary. You can't control those. So I would think about, I would think about driving my car into things, or I would think about traffic, or I'd think about crossing roads and like, what if, what if I just took that? And those thoughts I couldn't control. I couldn't say like, no, no. <laughs> I just, the other side of my brain would be like, wow, you can't control those. Um, so it was scary. Like when I got to that point, it was really scary. And I, I was really glad that I had a close enough relationship to my husband to to literally call and be like, I'm having these thoughts and I can't control them. And, and at least then he could come in and make sure that I was safe or make sure I didn't act on them. And I didn't know if I would act on them. I just knew I was having them and I couldn't stop them. And so I had to put him in place. He had to use my therapist as a resource. And we just had to kind of protect me through those thoughts and they still come up. I still have them, but I understand them now and understand where they come from. So I, 
I have tools now that I can use when I'm in that place. Um, but at that time, we were developing those tools, and and my husband was getting an understanding of mental health and what his piece of it is, well, you know, what he needs to do to help me and then what he doesn't need to do to help me. So th- that was like a whole education that we had to go through, but um, scary, very scary because people who are thinking these thoughts, it's like this common misconception that they just need perspective, that they lack perspective. And that when people are feeling really down, you need to say, but you have a really good life. Like you have a really great family. You have a roof over your head. Um, and it's, you are capable of holding these thoughts and perspective at the same time. And people don't get that. Like, I know I have a good family. I know I have a roof over my head. I am aware of all the perspective. I'm still having these thoughts I can't control. So the perspective, it does not remediate these thoughts. Um, that is another brand of work, of of doing the self-care work, of understanding where the triggers come from, of putting safety place safety things in place so that you don't take action on those thoughts. But it's not about perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really useful insight. I think for anyone, any clinicians treating people with any kind of mental health difficulty, whether it's yeah. depression, anxiety, panic attacks, um, from the outside, it can sometimes seem like the, the, the solution is obvious. You know, it's just yeah. a reframing exercise. You know, you just have to sit there right. and remind yourself that life is, is actually great. But what you're saying is that it's just not that simple. It's not that straightforward. It's not. No, and what what I'm what I'm interested in you mentioned that um when you fell into this kind of dark place you didn't have the right practices the right routines in place yep. to to protect you from all the the stress of the starting up your own business what things did you change in your life that make put, yeah. put you on that that steady state uh, alongside the the talking therapies and and, and help keep you there Yeah, I have four pillars that I focus on primarily. Okay, so sleep is number one, um, eight hours or more. And if that's not happening, then I'm on red alert because things are going to fall apart from there. So sleep is like absolutely number one. So much happened. And I've done a ton of research and really looked into sleep and talked to my doctor. And it's like sleep is like the golden the golden nugget. Um, so sleep is first exercise is second, but not as a method to numb or distract. So if I'm low, I can't go out for like a four hour run. I need to do like 30 minutes of healthy exercise. So not using exercise like to a a big level to numb when I'm in a low place, but instead moderating my exercise, but still getting out and getting my heart rate up. So it's like using exercise for mental health, not for all the other stuff I exercise for. The third one is talk therapy. Um, it's just super important that I'm in because I'm a verbal processor. I have to be in getting those thoughts out. I have to be doing my exercises and writing. So that talk therapy, writing down daily sort of thing. And then the last one is meditation, sitting in meditation. And the days that I'm the lowest are the days I don't want to sit in meditation. They're the most important. I call it the stupid meditation pillow on those days. Sit on the stupid meditation pillow. Um, so those four things are my four pillars. And when I start to go downhill, uh, we, we, I scrap things, I scrap things in my life and I go back to my pillars and yeah, I mean, now if things are heading downhill and I catch it early enough, you know, it's kind of like, I have to reframe my morning. I can't, I can't go do the morning I probably had planned. I've just got to like come back to these pillars for a little bit and, and then I can bounce out of it, um, by kind of accepting what is rather than pushing through. I can't, that's, that's the key, like accept what is clear the schedule, work on the pillars, wait 
for things to bounce back because I will know when they bounce back. But if I move forward when it's low, it's just going to get worse. So good sleep. Yes. Some exercise, but not in moderation. Some uh, talk to people, talk to people around you and and meditate. Uh, Yeah. That, that sounds like a winning formula to me. Yeah, it is. And and if I'm having symptoms on top of that, if those things aren't working, that's a great like diagnostic, I guess you would say. Like that's a good time for me to know that I need to, I need to be talking to my doctor. I need, you know, if those things fundamental things aren't working for me or I'm still experiencing a fair amount of depression or I'm still having anxiety, points of anxiety, it's really nice to be able to go to your doctor and say like, okay, I'm doing these four things and I'm still experiencing symptoms. And that really helps them guide your care. Mm. Yeah. It's it's quite interesting that you're able to, with those techniques to self-rescue to some extent, but you've also got the self-awareness to recognize when you do need some extra help when it's not quite enough. And I have help on that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You've got to know when, yeah. I have a network who's like, you need to clear your morning. I'm like, oh crap. Okay. Yeah. We're here again. Okay. I will. Yeah. I mean, it's a big, it's a, you know, the, the way that healthcare is changing at the moment. I mean, as a GP, I prescribe a lot of antidepressants. Um, yeah. In our 10 minute appointments, that's a, a very uh, easy way yeah. forwards. Um, but I think increasingly we're having more conversations with people about the broader determinants of their well being and what, what simple steps they can take to, to, um, yes. And, and th- th- just like the things you mentioned, the, the, the kind of fundamental pillars to well-being, good sleep, exercise, yeah. you know, connectedness with, with other people and practices yeah. like ex- yeah, like like, uh, like mindfulness and meditation. It, it's just it, it, I think the hardest thing I've found as a, as, a, as a clinician is encouraging people to to start on that journey. If it's something they've never been exposed to before, I think it's it can be quite daunting um, yeah. to, to, to do that. Have you got any kind of tips yeah. I mean, the four pillars are not daunting. Like we all know we need to get good sleep. We all need we need to exercise. Find a therapist. Like it is a little daunting to find one, but there's even some great online telehealth tools that are happening right now. Like you don't even need to leave your house to talk to someone. If you're really freaked out about that, like start writing your stuff down. These are not like challenging things. And then meditation, meditation is super scary until you realize like all you're doing is sitting there and trying to be still for a little bit of time (laughs) and it's amazing like those those four things how how big of an impact they can have but you know we really understand when we're not taking care of our physical health when we go into the doctor and our blood pressure is high and our doctor's like hey are you eating healthy are you getting healthy exercise like we have this built into our system that there are certain things you do to maintain physical health but we don't talk about that there are things to do to maintain mental health. And we wait until people are really sick and really scared to sort of start talking about the fundamentals. But we don't wait until people are, you know, knee deep in diabetes to be like, hey, have you thought about eating healthy? Like, no, it's steeped in our environment that there is this healthy foundation that we all need to do for our bodies. But we don't quite have that yet when it comes to mental health. And a lot of people I've found out from the airing of the show and all the feedback that I'm getting is a lot. There is an army of us out there who didn't really know that there are these fundamental steps we can take to at least like try to be mentally healthy and not wait until things get so out of hand. 
Yeah, it's so interesting how so many people come to this only in the heat of the battle, uh, at the, you know, the lowest ebb, when actually it's not about being reactive. It's about building a kind of healthy routine that, you know, on that kind of daily incremental level just just keeps you in that, that steady state that helps you build right. that resilience. Um, right. So it's in peacetime that we should be we should be developing these these habits yes. and routines and not and just not... just like physical health, right? Like there are plenty of us out there who are are steadily daily making choices to have good physical health. Have we had cancer? No. Have we had diabetes? No. We didn't have a scare. We just know like these are things we need to keep our body nice and healthy. Will we have cancer? Maybe. Like will we have an adverse health event? Maybe. But you know, it's not because we didn't kind of put in d- daily healthy habits, but we're, we just haven't had that discussion about mental health. You know, we haven't really pieced it out like that. And so people were coming at it backwards, right? Because we're only seeing people when they're getting to the end point and then we're trying to come back to those healthy foundations. And so, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of room for more dialogue here. Um, and then the athlete population is a great population to talk about it in because, we're used to doing things for health. Um, and we have a lot of mental health struggles like athletes. In Would you say in the athlete population, there's a lot of achievement focused thinking and perfectionism yep. that makes athletes perhaps more vulnerable to, to crises like this? That's right. Yep. When you are singularly focused, um, which is how we teach people to achieve really big things is to eschew balance, connection, community, you know, and we tell them to focus and isolate in one direction. If they want to be any good, we tell them to go big or go home when things are tough. Um, so yeah, it's a breeding ground for high, high achieving athletes is a breeding ground for mental health stuff. And then what about when you get the thing, when you accomplish the goal, um, there's a huge mental health component to how, how you perform when you, the goal, your rug gets pulled out from under you because it's now been achieved, what do you latch yourself to anymore? Um, and that's a very sensitive time to have a mental health issue. Yeah, absolutely. If, you have, if you're attached to if any one thing is giving you that sense of self-worth uh, and that's yeah. taken away from you, that, that makes you very vulnerable, doesn't it? Yeah. And we promote it in sport. We really promote people attaching themselves to the Olympics or gold medal or Kona or winning. Um, so we give people a lot of positive reinforcement for developing that sort of self-identity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Sonia, let, let's move on to the, the kind of second yeah. part of this conversation. Yeah. And what I'm, I'm we went interested deep. in those Okay. Shake it off. Um, yeah, I'm shaking I... it off. <laughs> <laughs> I really am a lot of fun. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's very candid of you, and I, you know, I just want to say thank you for, um, you know, and, and this, this, this will come through to the viewers who who watch you on on the uh, world's toughest races. The the degree of vulnerability that you're prepared to, you know, on on international TV to to, to kind of to, to display to the world. I just think, you know, in in media generally, we we just need more of that. I think we need to be more honest and have these kind of honest and open conversations about. The difficulties that everyone goes through and, and um, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter who you are. No one's immune to it. No one's immune. Nope. Mm-mm. So you were, so you have, you, you were a, a successful Ironman triathlete. You, you, you had a, a wobble, you were able to, to regroup. And then 
the world's toughest race came along. T- tell me how that came in came into your your field of view. Into my field of view. Um, okay, so I stopped going on Facebook because it was really triggering do, during my kind of healing time. But I would go on once a week for thirty seconds. That was my rule. Um, and Facebook and I had this relationship because it's smart and it knows you're only coming on for 30 seconds once a week. It's going to give you like the juiciest three posts that it can because it wants to hook you back in. And I swear it does this. So we go on once a week and one of the weeks I went on in December and did my 30 seconds. And one of the posts it showed me was that Eco Challenge is back and taking applications. And I had watched Eco Challenge because there were six series, six seasons of Eco Challenge in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I was like 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, pretty, pretty young. And I always looked at the women in there and thought that I identify with those ladies. Like those are my, that's who I want to be. Those are my people. Yeah. Like they're tough and they're outdoorsy, but they're still, there was always like a team playboy. And I was like, those women are crazy, but they're tough. And, you know, it just, it brought this, like, I'm tough and I'm, I I identified with them. So when it came back and I saw this, I clicked on the um, video that they had attached to the application to kind of like get everyone hyped up about it. And at the end of the video, it said, this is the race that eats Iron Man for breakfast. And I was like, oh my gosh, Mark Burnett just called me out. Like he just spoke into my, cause I'm Iron Man. That's really where my background is, is Iron Man. And I'm like, he just, he called me, he called me out. Like I want, okay. There's no I'm, way I could not I, do this now. Uh-uh. Like he spoke to me specifically. He couldn't have said one different line. It was like one of the only lines in the whole thing. And it, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to find a team. I knew I had to put together a team to put together an application and, um, I had coached, you know, tons of Ironman athletes through the years. So I had a bevy of people. I was like, who can I, who's crazy enough to go on this journey with me? And I immediately was like, oh, I got to call, I got to call James. He did 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days, which to me was like, that's more an expedition than it is an Ironman. It's, it's just logistically kind of wild and it takes a lot of mental strength. And so I thought he's probably crazy enough if he's not already engaged, probably crazy enough to say, yeah, I'll do it. He'd been doing some other crazy stuff recently I had noticed. So I called him and I said, hey, can we, do you want to do this? And he was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, well, maybe go watch the video. And he came back and he was like, wow, that's gnarly. I don't know how to do like all of those sports, but I'm in, let's do it. So from there, um, he had had a couple of guys he calls his wingmen on his 50 50 50 and i said get the wingmen like they've done a ton of ironmans and uh let's straight out of token yeah i wanted to be able to apply and say we have like 150 ironmans to our name we i think we have 126 but that was my like my hook i thought if they saw that we had like hundreds of ironmans which james brought like 95 of of the of the 126 to the to the it, table it's an obscene number of ironmans well, granted yeah. It's a lot of race entry fees. Um, so yeah, we, I mean, I, I, all three of the guys lived in Utah. I live in California and we filmed our application video and crossed our fingers. And I, I didn't think, I didn't know if we'd get in. I didn't know what they were looking for, but James was certain we would get in. So when we got the call and, and Mindy called me and said, you guys are in, I just knew it was one of those magical things where you're like, that was a light bulb. I took action on it. I put my best foot forward. And now they're saying, yes, you're in. I knew that it would be a life-changing experience for me just because of the the kind of way that it had come to fruition. 
And you had the Iron Cowboy in your team. This guy did 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days. Yeah, James, he's a beast. What a nutter. <laughs> he's he's a beast, man. He's learned a lot about himself through through the process. Um, so yeah, he was he was definitely the hub of our team. He's who everybody kind of knew. Um, I was the team captain, which really is a fancy word for team secretary because <laughs> you have to do a lot of secretarial uh, jobs in with Eco Challenge to to make sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. So yeah, once we got in the race, you know, James was more of our decision maker, our hub, like who we kind of, who kind of ran our team, the kind of leader of the team on the, on the ground. What I love is that you're all super fit and uh, super capable of doing this race, but you didn't have any adventure racing experience. You know, so you know, you'll be doing mountain biking. This wasn't, this isn't tarmac anymore. You're going to be not swimming in the pool, but instead you're swimming up canyons. Um, you know, what kind of preparation did you do as a team for yeah. this uh, for, for adventure racing yeah we lacked so many of the like re- requisite skills and eco was really great they had a certain level number of certifications that we had to get signed off on by like a climbing guide to know that we could safely navigate fixed fixed ropes um we need to get whitewater you know swift water certified so that we didn't die in the whitewater if we flipped our boat or you know something disastrous happened so there was uh, some navigation certifications and wilderness first aid that we had to get. So first and foremost, we were like, we got to get these certifications and we actually have to learn the things because these are sports we don't do. Um, I had had, I have a lot of like underground experience with a lot of the things in eco, which is why I knew I would be able to take a shot at this and actually get there because I, I backpack. It's not something people really know. I've whitewater rafted quite a bit. It's not something people know. I know how to read map and compass. So those aren't normal triathlete skills, but the boys were very much like swim bike runners. So the fixed ropes I had done, I had climbed all through college. So I I had like a lot of like background stuff in there. You're used to um, following marshals and boys around a course how did you what I'm, the, I'm, one of the great things in the episode by the way is that the epic nav errors that teams make how, how did you upskill in the orienteering the, the navigation side of stuff that was the hardest the hardest part so none of the boys are map and compass like do map and compass two of the guys are not like directionally you know there's just people who are like directionally like they get lost in their neighborhood and then other people have been somewhere once and they could find themselves back there again i'm that kind of girl like if I've ever been anywhere, I know how to get back to it. And in 2018, I learned Map and Compass on a backpacking trip. Um, I had a guy, Andrew Skirka, teach me. Uh, I was like an ultralight backpacking trip that I was doing with him. And he's like, oh, I teach everybody Map and Compass. And I was like, oh, I'll learn. And then when I learned it, I was like, right on. We don't teach girls this. We don't, we don't teach girls how to navigate my map and compass. We barely teach anybody anymore how to navigate my map and compass, but we definitely don't teach girls. So I was like, dude, this is not a gender thing. Like learning map and compass is not a gender specific thing. Girls can be super good at this and it's really fun. So at that point, I like I doubled down and I I got really into navigation and going more off trail in my backpacking trips. Um, so I was the natural like of the team. I was obviously going to be the one to navigate. I had experience. What I didn't have experience was navigating for ten days straight in a race setting, and that is, and and 
and having the team dynamic of like your errors now affect the whole team. And I really didn't want to get lost. If I'm out backpacking, like I'm not going to get lost. I'm going to have spent days with the maps before I go, but this is a high pressure environment where you're going to get the map. We got the maps 10 minutes before the start of the race. I had time to map only to the first checkpoint. And at the first checkpoint, I had to then pull all my maps back out and map to the second checkpoint. So I was like really uh, under the gun for that whole first segment of the race because I'm just mapping like one thing at a time. Um, and it's a big, the navigation is a big burden. Some navigators have been doing it for a long time. And so they've got a lot of efficiencies worked out for themselves, but I knew how to navigate. I just had to learn how to navigate in the eco challenge <laughs> with those new parameters. But yeah, it was, it was tough. That was tough. That must have been super challenging. And t- tell me about the start, Sonia, because that's quite entertaining to watch. Now, I'm not going to throw out too many spoilers, if, just in case you haven't seen the race. I'm not going to tell you what happens, but the start is where you're all starting these outrigger canoes and there's Bear Grylls hanging out of a helicopter. And Well, he was on the ground by then, but yeah. He oh, yeah, so he was back on land now. He's um, yeah. Anyway... He, uh, you're, uh, the, the, the start gun fires and everyone just goes nuts. And uh, there's it's just this maelstrom and everyone's capsizing and it's just yes. all kicking off. What was that like? Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> we knew we'd be starting on the Thaumakau canoes. They had built these canoes for us, the Fijians had. Um, it was a major initiative that the race kind of um, put into Fiji because their ancient wayfaring ways and ancient sailing ways are really dying with outboard motors and they're killing their reefs with their outboard motors. And so there's been kind of this resurgence of like, hey, we sail, but we're not sailing as Fijians anymore. So part of making all of these 66 boats and starting the race on these 66 boats was sort of this like call to action uh, to get the Fijian people like back into their wayfaring ways and using those traditional methods because these boats, like when there's wind, they haul. But um, So we knew we were going to be on these crazy boats and we did not know that we would start them on a river, 66 on a narrow river, 66 boats lined up on the edge of the river. Maybe the river fits like, gosh, maybe three boats across. I mean, it is a narrow river and we're all, we had pulled a poker chip to give us our like pole position and we were 14th. So 14th out of 66, we were like pretty far up in the field with where we got to start. And I had trained a ton on outrigger since we got into the race. So I felt like, okay, I can steer as long as the boys listen to me and and they keep paddling, we're going to be fine. So the the conch shell gets blown and bear yells go and we all take off and uh, immediately like boats are flipping left and right. And I, I'm steering around and other boats are coming at me because there's, you know, 40 boats behind me. And I just remember a boat in front of me flipped. I don't know what team it was. And um, so all their people are in the water and we come by and I watch my ama, which is the little outrigger pontoon that people kind of think of. it's called your ama. My ama was kind of shaped like a diamond and it had like a sharp edge to it. And I just watched my ama graze like an inch past this guy's neck. <laughs> and I remember steering and just like being like, oh my gosh, it's been 40 seconds in the race and I've almost all like killed somebody like I would have just sliced his neck open (laughs) his head would have just come clean off I don't think clean off but like I mean these things were sharp and we were moving you know like I would have definitely put a big old incision into his neck but I luckily didn't and 
and he got back on his boat and you know everything turned out okay but yeah the mayhem was not i mean it was it was crazy crazy and there's um later on in the race you're uh there's a great bit where you're um lugging this bike up this muddy horrible horribly steep muddy path and it just looks brutal tell us what that was like yeah kevin the race director later said to us i wanted to give you the right tool to do about 80 percent of the job that would then turn into the very much wrong tool to have with you for the job and so just because you're mountain biking just because you're on a mountain biking leg doesn't mean you're mountain biking so this leg had I think we had about 50 miles of mountain biking and the last eight kilometers was all hike a bike, they call it, where you can't bike. And the mud, it rained so much on the course that the mud became like at times like mid, mid calf deep. Um, and Fiji's very hilly. So you're, you're up a hill, then you crested and you're right back down, up, down, up, down. And yeah, we had eight Ks where we just had to push pull, drag, carry our bikes through this sticky, slick at times, like sticky at times, depending on whether you're at the bottom of the hill or the top, mud that just, it's red, it caked everywhere. You couldn't clip into your pedals. You would push your bike like two steps, three steps, and then there'd be so much mud on your wheels that your wheels wouldn't move anymore. So you'd have to like bang off your bike push it another three steps, bang off your bike, um, pull the mud out with your hands, like slop it out to just keep your bike like rolling. And there were just times where it just got too annoying and you'd pick up your mud filled 50 pound bike at this point and put it on your shoulders and try to just like hike up a steep hill. You know, everyone just had to find their own way. Some teams had a guy that was just a strong person that would just shuttle the bikes up every hill. And then everyone else would just work on getting themselves up the hill but we're Ironman athletes. We're independent. We're, we're so it was kind of, you know, we didn't do a lot of like, oh, I'll push your bike, girl, I'll carry your pack, which is a very common thing in adventure racing. But because we were so new, it was like every man for themselves. Like you just got to do it on your own. You just got to push through. And luckily, we were we were able to. But man, it was gnarly. So very different to spinning along on nice flat oh, tarmac. Yeah. No, none of that. <laughs> there's nothing flat in Fiji, by the way. Like there's just not a single. Like I don't even think the parking lots are flat. Yeah. And, and, um, you presumably you must've been fairly deep in the pain cave at this point. Did you feel that your Ironman background prepared you quite well for for that? Mm, I mean, the muddy section was so hilarious. Like it wasn't, it was one of the physically hardest thing I had to, I had to do because I had to carry a heavy bike with a heavy pack up a steep hill. And I remember thinking, gosh, I don't know how other people are physically, cause I'm pretty strong. And this is like, I'm about like, how do I take another step? But mindset wise, I was in a great place during that muddy section because it was so ridiculous that you're like, can't even be down about it because this is just hilarious. And I'm head to toe mud. And on the side of the trail that we were on were all these wild orchids. And I would go over and I would pick them and put them in my hair. Like, because I just thought it was so funny that I was finding beauty in the mud. Um, and so I had like all these orchids, like in my helmet, in my hair, like stuck to the mud. And it was just that kind of situation. Once it gets so ridiculous, I thrive. Like I thrive when it's ridiculous. It's when it's like, should be easy. And it's not that I tend to have more struggles because I'll be like, I don't think I can do this. Like this should be easy, but it's not easy. But when it's really, really hard, 
then I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. This is hilarious. Everyone must be dying. Like I'm going to laugh. I think that's great. You can, you can have fun with it. So what, what was the, the darkest moment in that race? Oh yeah. Um, I had a couple, a couple of them, but one that was pretty dark that was medical, um, and kind of speaks to how amazing the medical staff was at eco is on one of our really long treks. We, we were in and out of a river and the rivers there have all these boulders in them. So you're kind of, if you have to cross a river, you're like rock hopping, rock, 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 rock. And we were going up this big canyon. So we were across the river, back across the river, back, lots of rock hopping. And uh, I put my foot on a rock like I had already done, you know, 200,000 times in the race at this point. But for some reason, this rock, it was slippery in the right way. And my foot slipped off it, which had happened a million times, but my foot went left and my knee went right. And I tore a ligament in my knee. And I've never been injured in my life. I've never torn anything because I'm a straightforward motion athlete, you know, I've not a lot of lateral motion in my life, but I had done a lot of lateral motion preparation for this race. And uh, I thought, oh, that's a really weird sound and sensation in my knee. And I thought, okay, but it doesn't hurt. So I think it'll be fine. But then like, you know, half an hour later, I'm like, oh, it does hurt. And then an hour later, I'm like, wow, it really hurts. And then, you know, I had six hours left of trekking on that that trek. So as we pulled into camp at the end of that trek, I was barely walking on that knee. And that was a really low point because your brain is just going, oh my gosh, what does this mean? Am I out? Like, can I, did I, did I tear my ACL? Like, what did I just do to myself? You have no way of knowing. And your brain is just spiraling with all of the like, oh, I don't want to let down the boys, but I really hurt myself, but I didn't mean to, but I still did. And everyone's going to be disappointed in me. So, and you're too sleep deprived and hungry and exhausted to really have like normal thought behavior around this. You're just freaked out. Um, so when we got into camp, it was pretty late, maybe midnight or almost 1am and our, the medical staff was up 24 hours a day. So you, you just hike, I hiked it over to medical right away, dropped my pack and had a little cry, I think went to medical and I was like, what did I do to my knee? And they were great. He's like, I obviously don't have an MRI. I can't like give you a real diagnosis, but he ran through, he ran my knee through all these planes of motion. And he was like, okay, okay. He's like, it's not your ACL. It's not your MCL. Like he it's not your meniscus. That's good. He was able to kind of diagnose through movement and be like, I don't know exactly what you most likely tore in there, but it's over here. This is the problem point. Let's tape the heck out of it. And he told me, he's like, go sleep for five hours and then wake up and come talk to me. And I thought, okay, that's, it was really nice to just have that guidance from him because I would have swirled and been like, what do I do? What do we do? What am I going to do? So he's just like, gave me a prescription, go sleep. So I woke up from that five hours and I went to the bathroom and I was like, I can walk on this knee. And I went back in and I was like, I can walk on it. Like I can definitely walk on it. And he just taped the heck out of it with all his magic and kind of told me where I needed to tape it moving forward. And uh, we, we packed up and we got out of there. And at this very same time, one of our favorite teams, Team Sundance, had come in and we were all talking and Sylvia on that team turns out like she tore her ACL, MCL and meniscus. And she continued on. And so her knee was like four times its normal size and she was pressing on. And so that gave me a lot of inspiration. Like, oh, my knee's like, maybe I tore one small ligament in this thing. And yeah, it hurts like heck, but we're both going to just go for it. 
um, and the medical staff was so major in kind of analyzing our personal risk tolerance and advising based on that. Like it, it was, it was a really refreshing perspective compared to what I'm used to with medical staff at races, which is like, don't touch them. Don't go to them. They're scary. They're going to pull you out. But this was like, how can we work with you? What's your risk tolerance? You know, what do you feel comfortable with? Here's what we have advised based on that. And um, that's, that was really crucial. So you felt you were able to make an informed decision? Um, like beyond informed and, and without feeling like the advice, like feeling like the advice was very tailored to my perspective and what I needed to make an informed decision. Yeah, that's really excellent. That's really nice to to hear that. And did you have any any other contact with with the medical team through the remainder of the race? I was, um, I think I was in medical at almost every camp from that point forward. I think all of us were. You would go in to have them look at your feet. So all of our feet were getting really messed up and you'd roll into camp and that was really the first time you got a good look at your feet and got them cleaned off. And there were so many concerning things on your feet from like, massive blisters to jungle rot to pieces of skin that were just like not attached anymore. And infection is such a major risk in these situations. And so most of us were in there kind of, you know, maybe asking to get something drained or taken care of or tended to that was just a bit beyond what we felt comfortable doing with our own first aid kit, which we did have a really good solid first aid kit, but there's just sometimes you wanted to go in and be like, can you can you like, do I pop this? Do I, what, how do I take better care of this as I move forward? And they gave some great prescriptions on what to do when we were laying down to rest. They were like, wash, disinfect, powder your feet, keep them out of your sleeping bag. And so we started to get on a routine just from medical advising us on how to like keep our feet a bit more healthy throughout. But yeah, I was in, I was in after the knee and then I was at, in, in the two additional camps after that, <laughs> just to check in combine a tropical environment with the sheer injury on the skin from just putting that number of miles into them uh it's just a recipe for just an, an untold amount of foot yeah. problems yeah just being so banged up i mean everyone i think everyone ha had infections leaving for the most part like some of us were able to battle it without antibiotics i had five spots on my right leg after the race that were infected and I watched them, I watched them grow, I watched them grow. And then I just kept like eating healthy and sleeping and praying. And then at about, you know, 12 days after the race, I watched them start to get smaller and smaller. And so as my body kind of, it was just enough that my body could combat it. But so many people weren't in that position. It was already too far gone and they needed to go through the whole troubleshooting what antibiotic would work for them. And that was a big, that was a big deal for a lot of the racers after the race is just figuring out how they can combat whatever infection was in there doing its thing. And what was your highest point in the, in the race, Sonia? Oh gosh, so many high points. Um, I think one of the, the Fijians, the local Fijians are one of the most warm, compassionate groups of people in the world. I don't think there are friendlier people in the world than the Fijians. Every Every, they're really there to help. It's part of their custom that they save a bit of every meal they eat for potential guests. 
and that they welcome anyone in their homes with open arms. And we got like the full red carpet rollout. So we had done this really hard single track, muddy biking section right after a lot of the rains. And we were a mess. It wasn't the muddy section that was 8K, the hike-a-bike, but this was also hike-a-bike. And we were also a mess earlier in the race. And we popped out finally after, I think we were in it for like almost four hours of just like pushing, pulling the bikes, all muddy. We, we pop into the village and it's a party. They are partying. So they're chopping coconuts and putting coconuts in our hands. The music is going crazy. That's like, there's like rap in the background. They're putting babies in our arms, taking selfies. The, and they all took our bikes and washed and scrubbed our bikes. And then like fed us. And then this lady came with this bowl of donuts, like round golf ball sized donuts. And she just put one in my mouth. I didn't even ask. She just went around and she just like put donuts in mouths, donuts in mouths. I have never felt so, I've never gone through such a swing of being dirty, low, tired, hungry, hot to like clean, fed, (laughs) cool, uplifted, all of that in like a 10 minute span. And it was like a pit stop. You know, they didn't want us to stay there long. They, they were, we were in the pit stop. They were getting everything shored back up and cleaned and like pushing us off to go on the race. And it just is such a reminder that that life does that to you. Sometimes you can be so low and then you can come into a village and then suddenly everything is different. It was, it was the lowest low to the highest high. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that lady with that donut. Oh, that sounds like a great moment. So good. <laughs> it was so, it's like, it's, you think it'd be the scenery or you think it'd be the times when you like totally kicked butt in the race, right? You'd be like, oh, that was my high when I was just performing and, and just totally killing it. But no, it was like the moments with the people and the, the those warm feelings when you're really down and, and having that transition of low to high, that, those are really the the lasting moments. Yeah, I've, I've found that from many of the trips I've done, it's these small kind of acts of generosity where you get to connect with the locals. You have these unplanned, spontaneous or serendipitous uh, kind of little moments that and they're the ones that are, become your peak moments that you remember, you know, more than completing the challenge or summiting whatever it was you were doing you know that they're the ones that stick in your mind and, and that you grow from the most yes oh and could just give you that reminder like they just they're a metaphor it's a metaphor it's yeah i yeah i won't forget that woman with that donut i'm just saying i could have married her at that point <laughs> like, take me home I don't need to go back to my family. I'll just sit here and eat donuts the rest of the race. So we better draw our conversation to a close in a moment. Was there any other part of the race that you wanted to to quickly talk about? Yeah, there's a fun, there's a fun segment that I'm proud of um, towards the the end of the show where we get to Vua Falls and Vua Falls I didn't know during the race, but it turns out Vua Falls is like the crux of the race. Uh, It was designed that way. The race director knew everyone would be really tired and the teams who, the teams who didn't quite have it in them would have already fallen off. And so he knew at that point in the race, it would really be left with the teams that had kind of had it. They'd been through a lot of the really hard tests and they were still there. So now let's really throw something expert challenging at them. And that was the falls in the pools section of the race where we were, it's about a 24 hour section, of course. And we were hiking up a river with lots of slippery rocks, rock hopping, rock, 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 rock. 
we got to the base of Vua Falls and we had about four and a half hours of fixed rope ascending and traversing. Um, and then we were back in falls, falls and more river for another umpteen hours. Um, and at one point the river, the rocks that you could rock hop on disappeared and we just had to swim. And so this whole section people don't realize is about a day's worth of travel and, um, lots of potential for hypothermia. The water's low fifties, you wouldn't think, but we're in the highlands of Fiji. So it's quite, it's high and it's cold up there. And we got up to the falls. We had left camp, gone about five or six hours from camp and got to the base of the falls. And, uh, it was about 8 PM. And the lady there said, you know, it's pretty gnarly. Like you're going to get on these fixed rope systems and it's, it's rope to rope to rope and you're moving your ascenders. And it's, it's quite, it takes a lot of focus and it's cold out and you're in a waterfall. So it's going to be wet as well. Um, you know, I kind of advise people like it's 8 PM, maybe bed down for a while and, and do this in the morning. And I was like, well, can you get lost on the falls? Like, is it a navigational thing? And she's like, no, no, no. Like once you get on the rope system, you're going to be on that rope system for, you know, four and a half to six hours. And in my head, I'm like, as the navigator, who's always afraid of getting lost 24 hours a day, I'm like, dude, we should be doing things that we can't get lost at night <laughs> because it's easy to get lost at night. So I'm like, wait, there's this like freebie thing, this really fun freebie thing that we could do at night and not get lost. Like sign me up. That's what I want to do. So we kind of all looked around and we had just left camp five hours ago. So we were rested and well-fed and everything. And I was like, all the guys were like, yeah, we'll be fine. We'll go. And so we climbed the falls at night. And um, that was, I loved every section of the ascending. I just, I really came into my own in that section. It was cold. I love cold and it was wet and you could just feel the expansiveness of what you were doing, even though we couldn't see because it's pitch dark in Fiji. So it's just, your, it's your headlamp and it's one rope at a time and pushing those ascenders. And I got to the top of those falls and it wasn't even a feeling of accomplishment. It was a feeling of like, can I go down and do that again? <laughs> like I was stoked to get to the top, but I was also so bummed that like, ah, oh, that's it. Like we'd been on it for four and a half hours and I still was like, ah, oh, that's it. Like, can we do more of that? Um, so just having that experience of like finding out later that was really hard. That was a really hard section that was really testing. And I was like, oh, for me, that was the best. I really loved it. Buzzing loved off it. it. That sounds so cool though. Yeah. Climbing up that, those falls in the middle of the night with your head torches on and uh, yeah. yeah. Like what, a, what an experience. And just having this understanding that even the fact that this ropes course exists is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like when do you get to ascend four and a half hours of fixed ropes of Vua Falls in Fiji on a course that they've got, you know, that they've paid millions to keep safe, make safe, have guides, the whole nine yards. I mean, this is a priceless opportunity. And I felt that I, f I felt the honor of being able to progress through that section of the course. Huge privilege to huge privilege, huge, priceless, priceless. And of course, Eco Challenge returns next year in Patagonia. Yeah. Have you put another entry in? I have with not. So Team Iron Cowboy replaced their woman. <laughs> okay. Ah, oh, what? I know. It was news to me, but that's okay. Um, that's part of this sport. Part of this sport is that teams revolve around. And, um, you know, you go do this really hard 10 day thing with somebody and you're going to find out whether you want to race with them again, you know, and different 
different personalities, different um, goals that people want to take into the next one because you learn so much that you're like, oh, I got to fix this, 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 and this. And, um, you know, for the guys, like they probably need a more experienced navigator. Like I'm gaining my, and for me, like I would love a co-navigator. Um, so it, it does make sense for for me. So I put together a different team and I don't know if we'll get accepted, but either way, I know, fingers crossed, I will be in Patagonia because if they don't accept me, I'll go volunteer. Like I'll somehow be, right, like be maybe, part of it somehow. Maybe I could be like, like the errand girl for the medical team, you know, like I don't need to know anything medical, but I can run errands. So <laughs> I don't know how or what capacity I'll be involved in Patagonia, but um, I will try my darndest to, if not be a racer, be a volunteer and be a supporter of, of the experience for others. Well, a few uh, of my expedition friends and I, we've put a speculative entry in as well for, for next yeah. year. So who knows? Oh, who I'm knows? So we, we had great fun doing our, our video the other night on Zoom call. It's, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a completely yeah. farcical. But um, yeah, you just you just got to got to be in it to win it, haven't you? You've just got to have a punt. You don't get accepted if you don't enter. Like, that's it. Uh, if you want if you want to do something with your life, you have to put yourself in the game. And if it doesn't come, I'm, I'm a big fan of like, if it lights you up, make, take the next step. And then if, if that step is a wall, like that's how it was supposed to be. So pivot and look for something else that lights you up. And so for me, it's like, oh yeah, if they don't let me in, well, I mean, I'm still lit up. I'll go volunteer. Like if they don't let me volunteer, hmm, I'll probably be there with a truck, like driving around spectating, you know, <laughs> like just do more of what lights you up and, and then you'll, you'll be okay. Do you know what? Just part of it is just the possibility that it could happen. I find that very energizing. Um, you know, even if it comes to nothing, you know, you've had that dream. It's that that that's been created in your mind, and you know, it yeah. may spawn other things. And the people that you've connected with through that process may, may go. You know, you just don't know where you it's going to go. In that, you don't know where it's going to go. Nope. And you and, have and to. And for me, also, ninety-five percent of success, I think, if you agree with this, Sonia, but is just showing up, just just turning up, being being in amongst it. And yeah. And just remaining open to what is rather than trying to manipulate it, like showing up honest and open and, and, and being willing to say like the things that are for you will find you. And the things that aren't for you will be hard and annoying and, and piss you off every step of the way. So like, just keep looking for the stuff that finds you. It's meant for you. Yeah. And you've got a, a podcast uh, that, that, that's out now called yeah. um, Tales of Toughness. Uh, yeah, tell us yeah. a little bit about that, Sonia. Oh, man. So coming home from Fiji, one thing I realized was I met all these amazing people. There are like 330 racers. And I'm pretty sure the 10 episode TV show is not going to tell all of their stories. But I wanted to hear those stories of of, and I knew even the people who got featured, that's not all the story, you know, that's just going to be part of the story. So I knew immediately, I've never podcasted before, but I wanted to start a podcast where I had conversations with racers about some of these untold stories. And that's, that's kind of, as I've, I've done a ton of these interviews now has also morphed into like that kind of root of toughness, like authentic toughness, authentic resilience. Like what is that? Where's that coming from? So yeah, Tales of Toughness really focuses a lot on eco-challenge racers and their untold stories, but what's the root of toughness and resilience for them? Um, and those are the conversations I feel really passionate about having and sharing with the world. Yeah. So go, go check out that, uh, that podcast, yeah. Tales of Toughness. And how can people find you online? 
Oh yeah, I'm everywhere as Go Sonia, G O S O N J A. So um, GoSonia.com or Instagram Go Sonia, Twitter, whatever. It's everywhere. I, I seem to have a consistent message. It's Go Sonia. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see Sonia and the Iron Cowboys in action on Amazon Prime. That's uh, Eco Challenge. Uh, it's it's just so much fun to watch. Uh, I am just yeah, yeah. hoovering up these episodes. They're, they're just great. And there's just I love the way it's filmed. There's so much drama. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's just immaculately filmed. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Well, well, Sonia, thank you so much for your time. And it's been just great having your insights and your um, your reflections also, you know, on, on your Ironman and your, uh, your mental health and also on the race itself. So I, I just you. think it's been a really, really interesting uh, discussion. Thank, thank well, you so much. Thank you so much for having it and for asking such honest questions. These are really like they're healing conversations for me. So I feel just really thankful that you wanted to have me on and have this discussion. I'm honored. It's a great pleasure. 